Hello, and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hello. Aaron is the beginner on the cast when it comes to functional programming. He works primarily in .NET and PHP. Kat Chuang. Hey. Kat is a designer learning functional programming with Haskell. Logan Barnett. Howdy. He's a functional JavaScript programmer working on the front end. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a static functional programming enthusiast working mainly in Rust doing back-end architecture. We love hearing from you, so please keep it up. You can email us at contact at lambdacast.com, or you can find us on Twitter at LambdaCast. We also hang out on the FP chat community. There's a LambdaCast channel on there. A link to the sign-up for that Slack community will be in the show notes. And if you think we're doing a great job and want to support us, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And we have some patrons to thank for this episode. First off, we have Jason Suter and Jamie Rolfs, both donating at our top tier. So thank you very much for that. And then we have Christian Hamburger, Daniel Svensson, D. Wen, Julian Bojinka, Jonathan Fishbean, Nathan Scully, Nels Wadiki, Paul Naranja, Peter Tielmans, Thomas Varney, Tyler Harper, Wila Wee, and a name that was in Hebrew that we translated as Don. So hopefully that came through correctly. Thanks to all our patrons. Thank you. Thanks. So this episode, we want to talk about a subject that's a little nebulous, probably slightly more nebulous than the ones we've talked about before. It's sort of this idea of how functional languages tend to structure their data and the sort of surprising, at least it was surprising for me, realization of how different that is from the way other languages structure their data. And of course, this will initially bring up this question of what, what do we mean by structures data? And what I'm talking about is sort of like within your programming language, when you're working with it, it's the way you are encouraged or forced, I guess, depending on the language you're working in, to organize your data. So it's sort of your fundamental building blocks for laying out data in the particular language you're in. If you're in JavaScript, this is an object. If you're in C or C++, this is a struct or a class. If you are in uh, C Sharp, it's either a struct or a class, depending on your needs. If you're in Java, it's a class, those sorts of things. And those are actually turn out to be kind of different. Um, what we're not talking about here is data structures. We're talking about how, how data is structured, but not data structures, if that makes sense. Um, of course, data structures are, uh, there's implications for data structures based on this idea, but we're not talking specifically about a hash map or a dictionary versus a linked list, those sorts of things. And we're also not really talking about types here. Um, this kind of thing, I I would say fairly confidently is true. This, this different way of structuring data is true, whether you're in a dynamic or statically typed language. Um, and so types do come into it in, in sort of the practical way you use your data within your language, but this isn't specifically about like a type system or something like that. And types being integer, string, whatever particular thing you have is what you mean by types, right? Or if your language supports it, custom types that you've made, they're, they're classes if you're, you have a language that supports that, or if you're in a language with algebraic data types, you have all of the various types that you can create mm -hmm. um, through that kind of mechanism. It sounds like we're going to talk about collections of data, and it could be any type. 
So it could be a collection of numbers or a collection of strings, etc. So specifically, I'm not thinking collections. Okay. Well, let's get into our first topic because that's that's sort of a data structure. That's a data structure, and this is a little more general than that, if that makes sense. Okay. So if we talk about how you structure data in an OO language, we, we could go back to a sort of an imperative procedure language also if we wanted to take even further step back. But let's just go with an OO language, like a Java or C Sharp or something like that. So if you're in that kind of language, you can build, you have this tool of building up like a class or an object. You know, if it's JavaScript, it's an object. If it's C Sharp or Java, it's a class. You, you have this ability to, to build some sort of structure. And we've talked in the past about like AND versus OR data structures, where an algebraic data type gives you that OR, and a struct or a class gives you that AND meaning all the fields have to be there to construct one. So you kind of build up your, your data out of those, and you might say, I have a, whatever, I have an invoice, and an invoice has to have these four things, and they're of these types if you're in a typed language, and you go about your business, right? You can, you can fill in those values to have a invoice, right? To construct an invoice if you have constructors, and then you can pass that around and use that. But often, what I see happen is one of these things, the various things in your in your system, one of these things like an invoice, an invoice might have a line item. It might even have a collection of line items. The collection part's not the important thing here, but let's say an invoice points to a line item or a user. And in that data, it might have a reference to a user object or a line item object, right? Does this seem pretty normal for like an O kind of? Yeah, you mean like in C Sharp it might be syntax. It's like invoice.user or invoice.lineitem. Right. And and the important thing here is that when you say invoice.user, you're now talking about the user object that's at the end of that reference. Right? There's a reference pointing to another object. And then if that has a ID or name or whatever, you can say user.invoice or sorry, invoice.user.name or address or something like that. Right. You can traverse these things. There's like this live connection. If you want to get the name of the person that the invoice was for, you might do invoice.user.name. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the invoice doesn't own the user. It just has this relationship to this user, right? This, there's this link from the invoice to the user. And in certain cases, depending on, again, the, the details of your language, the from the invoice, it might be possible to reach out and change the user. Right. If any, if if there's any sort of setter on that user object from the invoice, we can say if we have the invoice, we also have the user, and we can update the user from there. We can call any of those methods that that exist. Right. Now, what I want to do is contrast that against the way functional languages tend to lay out their data. So this is something I've seen people run into when they they get past the basics of syntax and and some of the concepts, and they get to writing a program. And the first thing you're going to do or very early when writing your program is you're going to have to figure out how am I going to organize my data? What data do I need? How am I going to store it? Right? That's the meat and potatoes of all programming is managing data and manipulating it and, and transforming it. So the first thing you're going to notice is if before you had structured things where you had an invoice that linked to a user or a line item, you can't do that because there are no references in functional languages. Generally speaking, there's no references because to have a reference if you think about it, a reference really is just this thin disguise, this thin layer over a pointer. Like it, the garbage collector manages it for you, but it really is a pointer under the hood. So it's really saying, I know how to get to that other memory over there. 
And in functional languages, we deal with data. So if you have a data structure, you build the same data structure or as close as you can in a language like Haskell, or it could be Rust, or it could be F-sharp, or you know, anything that, that is sort of functional first, an ML-type language like uh, Reason. You're going to find that you have your, you know, the invoice can have a date or an invoice ID or whatever. But when you get to that user, you're going to have no way to have it refer directly to another live object, the user object. There's, there's no way to represent that. And if you can't do that, you, you need to relate them somehow because you need to know who this invoice is for. You have to relate them through something like an ID. So instead of having a live link, a, a user that you can say invoice.user.name, you're going to have invoice.userID. And then from the user ID, you have to know how to go and look up that user somehow. You said invoice.userID, not invoice.user.id. So we're talking about on that invoice, there's a property that's the user ID. There's, we're not, there's no user object attached at all. Correct, because there's no concept of like attaching two bits of live bit memory together. There's no references. Okay. So in at least in Haskell, I get the experience that when you have like a record type, it becomes a template of sorts. And then if you insert data, it's fields within that record. So to me, there's like the idea that it's not class as an object and you're instantiating the object, but it's more the using a template and then you could have the same data across different instances of that template. Although instances is not a good word for that. Well, from a from a Haskell perspective, instances doesn't mean a reference to a piece of memory. Correct. It means making another one of them in your, in your system. And and you're right. You have this template. You have this way of constructing them. All that's all that's great. But if you want to relate two together, if you want to say that these two are linked in some way, you have two options. You can either put the ID of one in the other so that it knows at least that much information about the other one, or you can embed one inside the other. In which case. Right. The one that is embedded is fully owned by the other record, mm -hmm. right? There's, they're not two separate records that know how to find each other kind of across the universe. They can reach out and kind of just grab each other. Right. So I thought in Haskell and other languages that are very similar, they have this concept of lenses, which is a mechanism where you can like deeply traverse into data structures, Right. Absolutely. But you're deeply traversing inside a data structure. So all the data is owned and exists within that structure. So this is kind of like the embedded thing you were talking about. Right. So if you have a structure A and you have two instances of it and A has a field that is another A, you can plot B inside there. But you now have one data structure, one record that contains you know some fields and an entire other data structure. These That would be a recursive data structure at that point, right? Because that could go infinite. B could contain another thing, which is C, you know, Got it. down the line. So this this really is like how uh, document stores work, where they can have like deeply nested structures, but like the document owns that in its entirety. Exactly. There's no piece of data that is shared between two documents somehow magically. If one document wants to refer to something in another document, it does it via an ID. Yeah, that has to be like a lookup that occurs. Right, you'd have to go find it. Go find me the other document with that ID. That's exactly true. So the right. first thing I see people run into is as soon as they need to have that, like the user and the invoice, and I tell them, well, you're going to put the ID of the user that created the, 
the request in the invoice you know record that you're creating and then when you want to go display the user on the website or something you actually have to go and find that in your list or dictionary hash map whatever data structure you're using you have to go find that id somewhere in there and they look at me like i am crazy like that is ridiculous why would you do that that is so much work that's hard that seems really dumb and there's this sort of it's almost like that's the way things are of course that's how we do things that's like the only way i've ever done things right you do user dot or invoice dot user dot name that's like it makes so much sense but if you think of the implication it means that there's something at the other end that is independent that's outside of your data that could change on you and that's not allowed so if you're in a language that says that's not allowed you can't ever have a reference references are disallowed because they're un they violate all your invariants that you care about it's too risky. Yeah. By too risky, we, we probably just mean like makes it so that you can't reason about it anymore, right? Like like you can't make these assertions, these definitive statements about your system. I, I don't know what the, the other end of that reference is going to be right. during this time or that time or whatever. So I can't, I can't go and say, well, I can just repeat this operation and the same thing will happen again. Because when I go and say, go give me the name of that user that hangs off of this invoice that I'm operating on, that may have changed. It might be pointing to a new user. Maybe even I don't have a user anymore. Right. And it's possible that internally, from an implementation standpoint, you could have a, a record that has a user and the user in memory is actually a pointer to some like user struct in memory that is immutable. And if it is immutable, you get all the characteristics we care about. But if it's immutable, then there's really no difference between it being a reference to some object that can never change and it being embedded in the data structure itself. Like those two things are the same from your perspective, right? It's yours, you own it. And if it's if it's shareable, fine. Like the system can figure out how to make that happen. So I'm not talking about like nitty gritty implementation details. We get a lot of emails about, well, internally Haskell does X, Y, Z. And I'm not saying those people are wrong. I'm just saying, logically speaking, we do not have a reference in the sense of like an OO languages kind of reference. We don't have those kinds of references. If, if there is any reference sharing stuff going on behind the scenes it's an immutable object and therefore it might it could from a from a correctness standpoint you could make a copy of it instead of sharing an immutable reference and it would be the same thing from your point of view from the program's point of view so in fp languages we have to work off these ids and if we want to go find the thing we have to know how to get it there's no automatic guarantee that we're going to know how to find the list of users like where did the list of users come from you have to, or, or a, a dictionary, you know, a lookup table for, for users. Where did that come from? If, if your program, if this part of your program needs it, it has to have been passed in. So now you have to like thread in this state, this extra information about like, here's the current list of users so that your invoice can go look up the user out of the list of users. And that is a very different way of working where normally I just pass you the invoice and from the invoice, you can get to all the things you need to do to work with an invoice, right? Because it has links to its user. It has links to these other things. But you don't have that in most functional languages. It feels like you would want to decouple a little bit then and start, I mean, you might want your invoice object or your in, what your invoice data structure, whatever we want to call it, to have a lot of the information that you're normally going to need. Yes. Because if you don't do that, if your data, I guess they're called records in Haskell, right? Yes. So if your record doesn't have the information you're normally going to need, and you need, and you're like, let's say we're printing out an invoice, and we, if we modeled exactly a invoice for a database, and we had an address table and a user table, we went passing in like ten objects just to print an invoice. 
That feels like a hassle. Depending how sort of normalized your data is and broken out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and th this is, again, one of these like early stumbling blocks of, hey, I'm, I want to do functional. I'm bought into some of these concepts, and this feels really hard. This feels really like onerous to have to do, to break how you do. Yeah, it doesn't feel hard. It feels or it doesn't sound hard. It sounds tedious. Okay, maybe tedious is better than hard. I think this this tells me a lot because I I mean prior to us starting to talk about this I didn't have any idea about what this was, but doing kind of like the hybrid thing that I do in my day to day where I'm trying functional style in a, in JavaScript, definitely notice that a lot of the operations get a lot more tricky when you're dealing with references. Not necessarily from like a data sharing perspective, but just like a, you know, I have to descend into this tree of a structure and I mean, like I want to manipulate this one thing that's at the very bottom of this, this deep structure, but I want to do it immutably. So I got to get a copy of the whole thing in the process, right? And it just, it doesn't fit into like a map statement very cl cleanly, right? Okay. And probably while you're doing that, if any of those things in your data structure are references out to other objects, you have to like now go do a deep copy to them and it's this sort of non-trivial sort of thing, right? If if you knew that everything in your data structure was just primitives, ints and strings and booleans, uh, that should be a pretty straightforward like copy operation, like clone operation. Right. So yeah, th this definitely has a lot of implications about how you structure your data. What Aaron's saying is, well, I'm probably going to pool data together maybe when it's more useful. Like maybe maybe even create a data structure specifically for printing out invoices. And at the step before I do that, when I have more of this data, I can assemble it from these other parts and then pass in the specific thing that I need. And that is something that I do see. Your record structure might match up with your UI or with, in this case, the report a little bit better than it might otherwise because it's just more convenient to structure it that way. And in a way, that, that makes it a real, real simple mapping. If you do take that time to make the record structure nice and simple, that at that stage when you already have the record and you're putting together the report or you're putting together the UI, that is real simple. Right. Maybe there's a behind-the-scenes step that is putting all the data together that's not quite as clear, but there is an advantage to having all your data in, in one like real easy you know, as you mentioned, just primitives all attached to one record. Yeah, and, and what you'll see a lot in functional languages is that making new types is very, very simple. And so it's very nice to make types for these specific purposes that tend to just be reusing other stuff you have and connecting them together in a certain way so that when you get ready to... Can you help uh, me understand what you mean by that when you're saying you can make a new type? I'm, I mean, when you're saying a new type, I'm imagining like a new integer or a new string or a new something like that. No, this is more like a new struct. Okay. So you'd have a struct for like like invoice display. Mm -hmm. And you could just pull out all the parts that you're going to need for the invoice display and put it on there. And then pass that into your function that does the actual formatting and assembling of your, your final display output. And it's very lightweight to make those sorts of things in a lot of languages. It's not a big heavyweight process. Um, so that you can do it on three or four lines. And so it's very uh, common to do because it's very easy. There's low friction in making it happen. Okay. You tend to see that more. All you mean by type there is just, you mean that a struct or... Which are types. Which is just right? a lightweight, a lightweight, oh yeah, a lightweight yeah. class. Yeah. Okay. Those aren't primitive types. Well, so in most functional languages, there's no distinction between primitive types and user-made types, the way there is in a lot of OO languages. Uh, they tend to just be types. So anything you make um, is just introduced with like with the type keyword, depending on language, or data type, or, or data. Those are just, they're all just types from the 
compiler's perspective or from the language's perspective. Okay, I did want to mention that there are similarities here. Um, Logan mentioned this earlier, but there, there's a lot of similarities in how data is represented in a functional languages with these IDs that kind of link disparate pieces of data together with probably what you've experienced if you've ever dealt with a relational database and with any sort of normalization. You probably have a table over here that links to a table over there using an ID into that other table, which is very similar to what we would do in memory. So there's some very nice mappings and, and same for a document database. A document database could, could look the same way. So th those concepts have proven themselves in very large scale kind of environments. And it means that a lot of times you don't need like a big ORM layer because your data actually matches what's in your database a lot better. That's kind of a side thing, a side discussion, but you don't have this. Let's talk about an ORM real quick. You, you want to talk about ORM? Uh, I'll just, just wanted to briefly just mention it. it's It's like an object relation model. Mapper. Yeah. Isn't it? Mapper. Yes. It's the idea of like, I don't like writing SQL statements or SQL statements. Yeah, so it'll generate the SQL for you. Yeah. I'm going to make a API that does it for me. Right. And, and the specific thing that ORMs do is they abstract this idea of what's like the model. So for example, when you have a invoice and you save your invoice, it's going to traverse and it's going to find the user that's attached and it's also going to save the user. I mean, it depends on how you configure ORM. But those sorts of things will happen. In like a Haskell or, or even Rust kind of data structure um, style, when you go to save something, you're saving a struct and you generally save it directly into the table that you're interested in and you save that one thing and then you would, so you would save the invoice and then if you had updated the user, then you'd go over and you'd save the user and you do those as separate things. There aren't these like chains of connections that you get because there's no references, right? Right. So you don't have a thing connecting to a thing connecting to a thing and then you go save out that whole chain. That's what ORMs often do um, in both directions. They'll pull them out or they'll save them for you. So we don't tend to see ORM style usage in functional inspired languages because they don't really need it. They map more directly with the table that you're saving to. Okay. Uh, that's that's a very like tangential thing here. It feels related to me. I don't know. I think I can't remember the name of the one in C sharp that's huge and bloated. I don't know if it's even still being used. Hibernate. And something. Is it yeah. in Hibernate? In, in Hibernate, which probably. comes from the Java world. Yeah. Hibernate's pretty commonly used there. Yeah. And those are those are very powerful systems. I want to like just say they, they do nothing for you or there's no value there. It's just that they are trying to allow you to pretend that the OO world of, of live references to other objects is what the database is saving, and it does not save data in that way at all. It saves data in much in a way much closer to the way a functional language would represent its data. Yeah, it lets you continue to think about objects in your object-oriented world. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's not just like there's a user record. It's like here's a user that has capabilities that hang off of it, and it knows how to be persisted to a database mm -hmm. and loaded and found and a bunch of other yep. things. So I'd like to get into some examples um, here. Clearly, um, we've talked about things like Haskell and, and PureScript and whatever, um, but a surprising one and one that I think helps gives a um, like a distinction that is useful is Rust. So Rust is a systems level programming language often compared to C++ in terms of where you would apply it. So not a space that you generally think of functional languages existing in, you know, low-level device drivers all the way up to, to applications. But Rust is heavily inspired by functional programming and has a lot of the ideas baked into it. And one of the really interesting things is in Rust, there are no uh, references, generally speaking. They're, they're, you can get them if you really want them. Technically speaking, you can get them in Haskell as well, 
but you have to really go out of your way to do it, right? It's not the normal way of structuring it. So I'm just talking about the, the bread and butter way of laying out your data. So in Rust, you have things called structs. You could think of them like a C-sharp struct. That's probably the thing they're closest to in an OO language. And the idea is you lay out the fields that you want, and you put your data in there, and, and you're off to the races. But if you have a struct that has needs to refer to another struct, you have to put an ID in there, just like you would in like a Haskell kind of language. Like from a data perspective, it felt extremely familiar to me coming out of like a Haskell space. And that's interesting because this is a language where for loops are normal. Like you might iterate, I mean, they have higher order functions and you can do a, a map and, you, and a filter and you can do those sorts of things, but you can also do a for loop. So the idea of how your data is laid out really doesn't need like all the functional stuff that you expect, your map filter reduce kind of stuff. It's really about how the data, like this lack of references being the, the key discerning factor. And, and with that, there's a few other things. There's no nulls, right? Because really we only generally need null to say that there's nothing at the end of that reference. Like when, when we deal with null, it is almost always talking about a reference, right? I don't think there's any particularly good use cases for null that's not talking about a reference. In fact, primitive types can't be nullable. Right. Or, well, generally can't be nullable. Depends on the language you're using. I think when you look at a database, there's the big argument about null and not null, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily use that in my, in my languages, but does that not apply here? So that's, a, that's probably a little bit different. I guess what I'm just saying is, in most languages, you have these primitive types which are not nullable, and the only things that are nullable are really references. So if you take references out, the need for null seems to kind of fade, if not evaporate, right? Um, and, and it needs to be replaced with something useful. You need to be able to say that thing might not be here. So Rust, of course, uses a... Yeah, that's really what you're... That's really Because they have started adding in nullable primitive types. In certain languages, yeah, there, there are those sorts of things. But those, but those, those almost always are um, acting the way option or maybe does in other languages. Yeah, where you're exactly right. Like, it's just, is this set, or does it have, or is it not set? Yeah, and you usually ask, you know, try to get the value out if it's there kind of thing, which if they had an option type, they would have just used that. And so Rust, as, a, you know, as an example here, has option built in, it uses it extensively, and so you would just, there's no nullable primitives because you don't need prim nullable primitives. You just use an option with the primitive, right? And, and again, they don't have primitives, they're just t types. And I feel like that's a lot clearer than the null idea, especially because you could potentially, for some weird reason, use null for something else. Sure. When you're exactly right. Usually, if you're using null, it's just for the this has not been touched or touched yet or is not set yet. Yeah, and usually it's a reference kind of a thing, right? This object that is supposed to be connected to this object has not been assigned yet or is gone or, you know, whatever has happened. It's been removed. Yeah. I mean, or, or it's. A, I think that it's, it could be a date and you want to know if the date isn't set yet. There's no, like, default value. Sure. So what was interesting to me was working with Rust, which I've done a lot of lately, um, it's a very low-level language in many ways. It's a very C-like language in many ways. And yet, because of this decision to not have references, to not have null, it forces a structure to the data that is very similar to Haskell, even though a lot of your actual data structures are closer to like a C++ in terms of they have a vector, which is just like a list in or an array list in Java or a list in C Sharp. Is similar to that. But I guess where I'm going with this is it's not just about the language features that make something have this property. It's more about the constraints that the language puts around what is allowed to be in your data structures. And if you can have a live reference to another bit of data, then you're 
clearly in world A, and if you can't do that, you're in this world B. And there's, it's a pretty big divide in terms of how you, how you lay things out and the implications. So another area that's sort of, uh, it's not a language, but it's sort of an environment, is uh, REST APIs. If we look at the way we structure data in the large on the internet, you know, REST is a very common way of interacting with an API. What you'll see is you don't have the opportunity to hold a live reference to some other thing. So when you request something, you get back IDs. And then with those IDs, you then make further requests to another endpoint, another service that gets you the data that you're interested in. And this is very similar to if you have a data structure and you have an, you have an invoice with an ID for a user, you have to go to the user dictionary and somehow get that and make a request to the user dictionary to find the user that is related to that ID. So that's very similar to how like a REST API works. Um, and I think it's interesting to learn from systems that work in the very large and are, you know, relatively stable. There's, there's something to be said for that. Like both, you know, relational databases have been very successful over the long term. Well, relational databases and document databases, neither one of them have these live referency kind of things. And then REST is another example. There's none of these live references and they get by just fine. So it, when people kind of have this emotional reaction of, I couldn't possibly work without my references, my OO style references. Like, how do I get anything done? How do I structure any data? The answer is all around us. Like, we, we do this in all these other contexts. We get by just fine without references. Um, it is a different way of working, though. And Aaron, you said it's not hard. It's annoying. I agree. It is more annoying than hard. But I think it might be viewed as, wow, that's a lot of work, where I could just say invoice.user.name, right, in, in the way I'm used to it. Yeah. Well, and I'm hopeful that, because in a relational database, you have joins. Like, you can get related data yes. in a single statement. And so I'm hopeful that there's tools that allow you to do things like that. Um, generally speaking, that's up to you. You you decide. So your join would be, I pass you both the invoice and the user dictionary. And then you can look it up, mm. right? You kind of do your own join. There have been experiments into like in-memory relational sort of data structures that can do sorts of those sorts of things, um, but those have not penetrated the mainstream. Mo most of the normal stuff is just, I'm going to hand you the dictionary and you're going to look it up yourself. Or I'm going to look it up ahead of time and hand it to you. Yeah, I think if you structure records right, then maybe there's a way to get around this as well. And so this, again, feeds back to the way you structure your data in while designing and evolving your app is fairly significant. You can get a very significantly different kind of design when these constraints are in you. And, and I view these as very good constraints, constraints that lead to good outcomes. All right. Do we have anything more to say about that topic? So I just looked up what Rust means, and this page told me it's stateless, cacheable, and I guess the stateless part makes sense in relation to functional programming design of data structures, not data structures, but structuring of data. Yeah. So I guess what the rest thing I was talking about is when you make a request over the internet, you're not like, there's no way for it to return like a in-memory reference to something on the server, right? The best it can do is give you back an ID that you can use to send a different request. Right. So you are sort of disconnected from it that way. And we generally, in OO languages, we think of it as one nice big memory pool where it's fine if I just hold on to these references to other parts of memory. Right, like a yeah, whole exactly, chain, chain of, of things. Calls. Mm -hmm. And 
that's great when it's one system and it makes it really hard when you want to break that system into multiple parts or do multi-threading and, and all those sorts of things. So basing our the way our languages work on a system that is a little more distributed by nature makes it very easy then, or much easier, I wouldn't say easy, uh, it makes it easier to then move into a world that is actually parallelized. Mm -hmm. That's one of the benefits of structuring data in this way. And that's that's sort of indirectly why I think a lot of people say, oh, functional languages are good for parallelization because their data structures are already in a format that is amenable to being broken apart and and set out to be worked on independently because they don't have this chain of memory where you have to be real careful that everything in that chain actually stays in the same memory space and doesn't get broken up and you lose like half of your objects. Like that would of course cause your your program to break, right? If that happened. Right. So you, you don't have to worry about that when there are no references. Mm -hmm. It's extremely easy to break things when you're doing multi-threading or parallelization right. in C sharp. Yes, exactly. It's it's almost like you you're probably going to break it by default unless you're you know unless you know exactly. Yep. Yep. And there's huge books and experts on this that still get it wrong. And so, um, sort of going for a direction that builds in sort of good best practices by default. They're considered best practices, I guess, in the OO world, and they're just the way things are in the FP world, right? Because we don't we do not do all those things that can get us into trouble. Yeah, there's no other way to get around it. Right, that's just how things are structured. Okay, we have a, a bit of feedback. Um, it's been uh, quite a while since our last episode, so we have a little bit of feedback from here. Um, the first thing I wanted to mention was that CPPcast has been giving us a shout-out that I did not know about. So thank you to the hosts of CPPCast for showing us some love. And where could we find CPPCast if we were looking for them? Uh, CPP, we'll put a link to the CPPCast show in the show notes. Nice. Great. Okay. There's sort of this interesting um, discussion going on in the C++ community about what things should be added and changed. And they are actually pretty, well, in my view, they are being heavily inspired by things like Rust, which are inspired thus you know, directly by things like Haskell. So sort of indirectly Haskell and these other functional languages are inspiring C++, which is a pretty long chain. Like you wouldn't think that that one would lead to the other, but there's proposals to add things like um, type classes, or if you've um, seen Rust, they're called traits, to add a system like that to Rust, sorry, to C++. Um, C++ got Lambdas a while back, so there's there's a bunch of features that are sort of trickling into C++. So there's uh, interest in that community to look around at other languages that are influencing their language, and that's causing a lot of sort of cross-language pollination of ideas. Interesting. That's fantastic. Nicole Mazuka wrote us an email. Um, they said, I was listening to your latest episode and was enjoying it, but something really annoyed me. When discussing generics from other languages, we talked about C++ templates as if they weren't interesting. It bothered this person because, in their opinion, that uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. And that Quick correction, as if they weren't interesting, as if they were not interesting. Right, were not interesting. They're saying the C++ type system is one of the most interesting outside of something like, the they mentioned the calculus of constructions, because it can do uh, arbitrary things based on the properties of types. It, it has a, sort of this template metaprogramming concept which is very powerful. Um, I don't actually recall us saying that C++ templates weren't interesting. I remember us saying that C++ templates are different from things like generics and Haskell. That it's not, while they attempt to solve the same problem, there's some fundamental properties of them that they go about solving that in different ways. That's what I remember saying. So uh, hopefully uh, you 
no one else take, takes away that we are saying C++ templates aren't interesting. It's just that they are a different kind of solution to the same problem and one that did not apply to our talk about generics. Okay, on our Slack channel, there was an interesting discussion. Rafael Machado was talking about uh, the idea of pure functions being total, and they were confused because uh, they said that we, we had said that all pure functions are total, and they said that these feel like orthogonal concepts, meaning a function can be both, neither, or any combination in between. So Joshua Hillerup jumped in then and said that we, we had said that all mathematical functions are pure, and he objects because all mathematical functions are pure and total. And we, we kind of got into a little bit of a discussion and uh, about you know purity and, and totality, and, and that's its own topic. Uh, but he did I did ask him for some use cases. So um, we came up with these use cases where something is pure but not total. And just as a quick definition, purity means it is going to give you the same result every time, given the same input. So that means it doesn't change the outside world or rely on anything in the outside world. Total means it always gives an answer for every possible input. And those seem very related and often they overlap very hugely, but there's a couple places where they don't. So if a function throws an exception, I guess you could argue that it doesn't mutate any state. I actually think this mutates state, but he was saying it does not mutate any state and therefore is not effect, but it's not total because it did not return a value. Isn't uh isn't stopping your program in effect? So generally speaking, I don't think stopping your program or not stopping your program is considered an effect, like control flow. Really? The, the question would be like, does it mutate state? Is it observable from the outside world kind of thing? I mean, throwing an exception, like it matters, for example, like if you're in the middle of a map, right? It, it suddenly, like some assumptions that you can normally make about map don't apply anymore because it, depending on where you throw the exception, changes the outcome of the map. Sure, but it's not like right. reaching out to global state and mutating some variable at every iteration. It's not doing those sorts of things, sure. right? So it's it's a different kind of an effect. And I think generally we should consider exceptions effects. But anyways, his, his second thing that he pointed out was a function that never returns. It infinitely recurses, for example. That is something that does not mutate state, but it is not total because it does not return a value given a valid input. So he absolutely has me there. 100%, uh, not all pure functions are total. But the vast, vast majority are. The vast majority are, for sure. Is a function that never returns, that's not effectful, is that sensical in any way? No, but it's valid. So you can have a function that your compiler says is pure that does not return a value, and thus is not total. And there are languages that have totality checkers. But those languages then require a whole bunch of extra work on the programmer's part to prove that a function is total, and it will terminate. Right. And that's not generally something that we do. Like, the ergonomics of that are not high enough that it's worth the effort in most cases. That's like an Idris, right? Um, yeah. Actually, I don't know that Idris has a totality checker. I believe you need to do that in, like, your Agda and Coq and, and things that are sort of the proof assistant style uh, languages. I thought it, I thought Idris was total, but maybe not. Um, it's possible. I don't know. Okay, and then someone named Perky was talking about higher-order functions. And uh, they were just talking about how one nice benefit of a higher-order function is that it gets to decide kind of internally how the execution happens, that you're only caring about the what, not the how. And an example of this is if you pass in a function to a map, that map internally can iterate 
basically in any order it wants to. And they, they talked about, you know, there's different instruction sets on different kinds of processors that potentially your language could compile down to that could be much more, you know, or marginally more efficient. Uh, for example, if you do a loop using a, or sorry, you use plus plus i instead of i plus plus or minus minus i instead of i minus minus, that's actually a little bit more efficient because you save uh, allocating one extra integer in there. And all that can be done because you don't care about the, the how, you only care about the what. So, I mean, your map, if, if for whatever reason it was efficient, your map could iterate in some totally nonlinear order dealing with all the elements in your collection that you're iterating over. And that's all left to the compiler. And that can be added later. So that's kind of a cool benefit. John Sue wrote in about laziness. We actually have several in here about our laziness episode. And they were just mentioning that while Haskell is not doing memoization explicitly, we, we talked about Haskell doesn't just auto-memoize everything. It does have this concept of sharing where chunks of computed values can be reused. So we'll put a link to that John shared with us about Haskell sharing in the show notes. And uh, that comes into effect in a few places. Uh, people use it to optimize things like generating uh, Fibonacci sequences and things like that. And that can be pretty handy to uh, speed those up. All right. And then um, YB Martin uh, wrote in uh, also on Slack uh, talking about laziness. And they were just mentioning some disadvantages of laziness. We talked about this in the episode a little bit, but just the idea of uh, if you're dealing with something that's lazily used that's a resource some sort of thing in the world like a, a file or something like that when you go to actually consume that resource um, that's a process called reification so that the thing is reified um, it may not be there it might have changed and that can cause some very strange errors where you think you've got the file you think you've read the contents and then somehow that file has changed or been deleted or, or whatever in the meantime and your actual operation fails when you were thinking it was successful. And if you're in the Haskell world, uh, I think there's a fairly uh, general consensus that lazy IO is not a great idea, and we tend to do IO in a strict way that we read that file in right now. This isn't to say that we read all the file. We, we still do paging in of you know chunks, that kind of thing. But when we go to do the read, we, we force the read right then. So laziness is not a great uh, choice for IO type operations. And then Eric Rodriguez wrote to clarify that the opposite of lazy is not strict, it is eager. So you have lazy and eager evaluation, and the opposite of strict is non-strict, and that tends to deal with the way in which your, like your syntax tree or whatever your code gets parsed into is reduced or processed. So if you're interested in the, the details there, I think from a general perspective, we can talk about lazy versus strict. But um, if you really care about it, you can you can look into lazy versus eager and strict versus non-strict. And there's, you're not saying there's something between lazy and strict still. That's not the case. It's just technically lazy and eager are actually opposite. Uh, yeah, I don't know of an example where something would be lazy and strict. Um, that would seem to defeat the purpose of it. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then finally, Alejandro wrote in um, to share an example on phantom types. So they shared a link to... A project that's showing a little snippet of how to use phantom types. So we'll have a link for that also in the show notes. Thanks to everyone on the channel, by the way. I know it's been a little while since our last episode, but things stayed pretty lively. I didn't catch everything. It's almost hard to keep up with sometimes. Yep, we love we love the conversation that's going on there. And with that, I believe we are done. Thanks, everybody. 
Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening through to the end. We'll see you next time. Bye.